I text those from 2 Corinthians 1 verses 12 to 24. If you could turn there now. Now this text is very peculiar when you read it first. In fact, I was seriously considering leaving most of it alone and moving on to something more meaty. But then I thought, hang on. If this is really the inspired word of God, which I firmly believe it is, then I'm doing us all a disservice by pretending that it isn't there. So I persevered. And I'm very glad I did because there's heaps of great stuff in here after all. You just have to dig for it for a bit. But before we go on to look at the text itself, there is a bit of backstory that's required first. Now Paul's first visit to Corinth was in the last part of his second missionary journey. And there he met and stayed with a Jewish couple, Aquila and Priscilla. And all three of them, it turned out, were tent makers, and so that's what they did during the week. But on the Sabbath, Paul argued with the Jews and the Greeks in the synagogue for the gospel of Christ. And they tolerated that to start with, but after a while, those Jews became very hostile. They rejected his message, and they attacked his reputation. Now, if you look at Scripture, Paul doesn't seem to be a man who was scared very easily. And the fact that he soon changed tack to go and minister to the Gentiles instead as a result of his persecution suggests that things were really bad in that synagogue. And happily, his work among the Gentiles bore much fruit. Many believed and were baptized. But those Jews still didn't give up. They dragged him before a tribunal and accused him of teaching people to worship in ways that were contrary to the law. However, Gallio, who was the proconsul of Archaea, who's the big man in those days, well, he just told the Jews to go away. And he said, I refuse to rule on matters of Jewish law. And so Paul carried on preaching for many days longer, but left eventually for Syria. And that's the official story. And we can sum that all up by saying the first time that Paul went to Corinth, people were saved, but there was big time trouble for him along the way. The most important part of Paul's third missionary journey for today's purposes was the time that he spent in Ephesus. Guess what happened there? It was pretty much a repeat of the bother in Corinth, but once again, the gospel worked powerfully. But the thing to note is that during his time in Ephesus, Paul didn't lose contact with the church in Corinth. He was trying to keep tabs on what was going on there. We know from Scripture that he sent them a letter urging them not to associate with immoral men. And unfortunately, they misunderstood that to mean that Christians should completely cut themselves off from non-believers. And then he had some Corinthian visitors who told him about the quarreling and division that had happened in their church. He also received a letter from the church asking for advice on things like marriage and food offered to idols. And when we look at these snippets, they suggest to us that things weren't exactly going to plan And there wasn't a particularly harmonious relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church. If we keep this idea of tension in mind between Paul and Corinth, and we have a look at 1 Corinthians, which was written in Ephesus, we see some more clues about this this, um, problem that was developing. Phrases such as, some are arrogant as though I'm coming to you, and this is my defense to those who would examine me. And if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is a command of the Lord. 
These passages and others reinforce the idea that there were some wolves among the sheep in Corinth who were intent on seriously wounding Paul's reputation for their own ends. And it's against this backdrop of problems that the book of 1 Corinthians is written while he's still in Ephesus. So perhaps the problems are solved. But wait, there is more. Enter Timothy, hot off the boat from Corinth with more bad news about those pesky Corinthians. Now, there's a whole lot more of this stuff, but I won't go there because I can see people are already falling asleep. We've seen enough to provide some explanation. What might be seen in today's text as an unnecessary diversion into defense of Paul's character when he ought to be speaking about sin or love or something more meaningful. After all, we did pay for the full experience here. This is the Bible after all, mate. So, let's finally read today's passage. The thing is this. The testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now, I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast, just as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you, and be helped by you on the way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things that I plan, do I plan according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Moreover, I call God as a witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. Well, our passage starts with boasting. So let's talk a little bit about that. Everyone knows that it's just not the done thing in the Western world, and most especially amongst those of British descent, although it is apparently something that is completely missing from Donald Trump's moral compass. Here in New Zealand, opposition to boasting is particularly fierce. Not only should one not boast, but those around you will actively help you to not do so and that's otherwise known as the tall poppy syndrome. So, how do we deal with this bit here? It's, it's a little bit awkward. Perhaps it's a Jewish thing we don't understand. Well, apparently not. In the Jewish tradition, humility is amongst the greatest of virtues, whilst its opposite, pride, is amongst the worst of vices. So it can't be that. Yet here is that word boast, written by an extremely learned Jewish man. Has he perhaps lost the plot? No, let's look at how it's used. Paul uses this word boast much more than any other New Testament writer, but he does so in two ways. And in both cases, 
it shows a kind of confidence. One is positive. However, to be so, such confidence must only have a base in God's abilities, not in humans. And the other is, of course, negative and is an unwarranted self-confidence resting on a person's own merits. I believe it is clear here in verse 12 that Paul is definitely boasting in the positive sense, since he points out how his boasting rests in God. <laughs> I was wondering who was outside. Um, <laughs> so the meaning of Paul's boasting here is easily explained as a positive confidence. But the question still remains, why even include these sentences at all? I mean, sin is so much more interesting. To resolve that problem, let's think back to that back background section at the beginning of the sermon. A little refresher. So th there are clearly problems in the Corinthian church that need sorting out. Next, they need the intervention. But that party must have the authority to be effective. And you'd like to think that since Paul had physically led many of that church's members to salvation, he'd literally establish the church and then continue to teach them correct doctrine that he was absolutely the right man for the job. But those niggly little bits that we looked in 1 Corinthians, they show that not everybody thought that way. There was serious opposition to him, both as a person and consequently to his message. With these things in mind, we can now draw a conclusion and from it a lesson. Paul inserted this defense of his character here because he knew that his conduct and his testimony were directly connected. He knew that if his readers thought that if he said one thing but then did another, his counsel would not be taken seriously. It's kind of like he's saying, you know you can trust me. I'm very confident about this message and my past messages since they are founded on God's grace, not my own human wisdom. And by the way, folks, you know I tried extra hard with you guys, more abundantly, as this text says. To show you this. And there is our personal lesson. How confidently can you or I boast in the similarity of our walk and our talk? How much of those things is rooted and fixed in the Lord and how much is on the wobbly ground of our own means and measures? I can tell you that I personally am painfully aware of where I am in this and I I sometimes wonder how many times I have blown the opportunity to show God's grace to unbelievers just because of what I have done unthinkingly in a moment. I know that if it were not for God's mercy through Christ, I would have no hope on the day of judgment because I know I have failed so many times in this way. Since this is a problem for most of us, if not all, we have to ask what can we do to try to make sure that what we do in the world and what we say about the gospel are the same thing. Well, I can see three principles here in verse 12. Firstly, be simple. The Greek word used here is very helpful. It is haplotes. It has various meanings, but it could be put as not braided or not weaved or not knit, not twine. In other words, it describes a thing that just has one part, not many things mixed together. And so 
In context here, it describes a person who has a singleness of purpose and works towards that with no hidden agenda. Each of us will know where we stand in comparison to that standard. Are we one sort of person at work, or another with friends, and yet another on a Sunday morning here in church? If we expect to be taken seriously as Christians, we need to be one and the same in all circumstances, despite the cost, the fear of rejection, or whatever holds us back. The gospel must stand above all other things in importance in every part of our lives. Secondly, let's be sincere. Again, look to the Greek. Elekronia, which literally means to be judged by sunlight. In other words, to be an open book to any observer so that your motives and your purposes are crystal clear. It's very obvious under the very brightest light and the most intense scrutiny that you are through and through what you say you are. Thirdly, Rely on God's wisdom. Oh, what's that? How do we know what it is? Well, it's the system and standards for living that are found in God's holy word, the Bible. It is a system that has been under attack for thousands of years and is still so today. You know, just recently we voted on the matters of euthanasia and marijuana, for example. And it was so hard to make up your mind on these matters by following earthly reasoning. I mean, the arguments that were made for these things, they seem logical and persuasive, and they're aligned with high human motives such as dignity and compassion. The trouble there is that if your theology, your, your knowledge of God's wisdom is weak, then you will not know which path to choose. So if we want to be like Paul, if, if our walk is always to be seen as our talk too, then we need to be all of these, single-minded, open to inspection, and full of the wisdom of Scripture. Well, that's very nice. I'm quite sure that now that we know how, by next Sunday, all of us will pass these by 100%. Yes? Yes? Of course not. We will fail. But that is no reason to give up trying, because the Holy Spirit is always at work in us constantly, little by little, helping us. Not helping, note, helping, not making. We must work with him, and we will become more and more of these things. So press on, do the hard things, but be sure that you know what they are so that your work is focused in the right places. Paul's apparently peculiar language goes on. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast, just as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Well, this is actually not really so complicated. All that's being said in verse 13 is that from the Corinthians' perspective, what you read here is absolutely consistent with what I have said or written to you before. So why are you saying that I'm a person who is of a changeable character? Simple. But what about verse 14? It seems to me that Paul's comments here are a measure of the enormous value that he places on salvation. You might imagine that if you were writing a letter to someone who had bad-mouthed you, that in your heart 
the last thing you'd want to do would be boasting about them to anyone, let alone on the day of the Lord. But that's what's exactly is written here. Paul is proud of his converts. On that day, they will be the proof that he has faithfully carried out the commission that he was given by the Lord on the road to Emmaus. And factually, what else is there of any real value that any one of us can carry to the God on that day? I know he won't be impressed by the size of our house or the shininess of our car or the number of letters and numbers and names after our name. We know from Scripture that Paul suffered greatly for his work. He was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was rejected, he was chased out of town and the like. But he could set those things aside against the satisfaction of offering to God a rich harvest of souls. And he also hoped for the reverse. There are always two perspectives to our lives, us looking out and them looking in. Paul wanted those who had come to faith by his teaching and his example to be proud of him, not because he had a big head and wanted to feed his ego, but simply because he had lived what he taught. He wanted to know that he could hear them say, I'm glad that guy brought me the good news about Jesus because he was a great example of living it. Now I'd say that is a quality of life that is worth us striving for. Okay, let's have a look at the rest of our text. And in this confidence I intend to do you before that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you Macedonia, to come back from Macedonia to you and to be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? All the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh that with me there should be yes, yes and no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and him amen, to the glory of God through us. In verses 15 and 16, there appears to be some very stuff about travel arrangements. First I'm coming here, then I'm going there, then I'm coming back to you again. Ho-ho. I guess it is a bit like that, but we can also see here how deep Paul's concern must be for the church in Corinth. My friend Google helped me to discover that the, the distance from Corinth is, to Macedonia is 741 kilometers. So in, in planning to visit Corinth twice, Paul had committed himself to an extra 1,500 kilometers of journey, and the best he could help for along the way was the donkey bus. And also bear in mind that in the first place to travel from Philippi, where most people think he wrote this letter of 2 Corinthians, to Corinth is another 363 kilometers. So what we're reading about here is a very arduous journey indeed. It's not something you do on a whim or without serious purpose. And that's exactly what he goes on to say in verse 17. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? All the things that I plan, do I, do I do according to the flesh? Well, there's more to this section than concern, though. Paul's original plan was to leave Ephesus, travel to Macedonia by way of Corinth, and then go back to Corinth for another visit. Hence this mention of a second benefit. However, it turns out that that first visit 
didn't happen. And nobody really knows why. But it must have been a very serious problem indeed, because to not go when he said he would go, otherwise stands at odds with this argument he's making here of not being double-minded. And unfortunately, this change in travel plans did give fuel to Paul's opponents in Corinth, who used his non-arrival to try to further discredit him. And that's why he needs to clear things up in this letter. It's more of this character and conduct connection. And he does so in two, from two angles. Firstly, he asks, do you think I did this lightly? Did I just rely on my own emotions in this matter? Perhaps I do this like some people do, just flipping this way and that way depending on what other people say or how circumstances change. Yes today and no tomorrow and then maybe yes again the following day. Secondly, in order that there is no possibility of misunderstanding, he answers that question himself. He says, no, no, I don't do that. My example is God in whom there is no change. If I said I was coming, then I was coming. But if things changed, it certainly wasn't done lightly. A little earlier in this passage, we, we noted that Paul was notably single-minded. He lived to preach the gospel. And so if there is any opportunity at all to do so, he pops it in. He just can't help himself, right? Right here in verses 19 and 20. Of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through us. Jesus Christ was God's yes for all of humanity. And that was a very big yes. You can see that it has a capital letter up here. That's because it's God's yes. And we need to be careful about what is meant by that, though. This section shouldn't be misinterpreted as a magic incantation to get what we want out of heaven. On a number of occasions, I have personally heard the scripture being used out of context in prayer. For all the promises of God are yes and amen. but not as a guarantee for a Ferrari. What is true, and what is yes and amen, is that if you acknowledge your sin to God, ask for his forgiveness, and promise to take Jesus as Lord of your life, then he will say, yes and amen. He will say, yes, you are now my child forever. He will say, yes, you can come freely to that throne of grace and ask for pardon. And I will give it. He will even say, yes, come to that same throne and make your petition for that Ferrari. And maybe, just maybe, if it is for my glory and your good, then you will have it. He is that kind of generous God. He will say, yes, I will place my Holy Spirit within you as a guarantee that my yes is yes and will never be no that no one can take you from my hand, and I will never let you go. Always, amen, and yes, you will live with me in the time to come in a new world that I will make one that is free from sin and suffering. Yes, 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 and amen. But it all pivots on Jesus and his death on the cross. 
but paid the price for your sin and mine. Without him, God's invariable answer to us is no. Also, with a capital N, it is final and without Christ, unchanging. So, we've come now to the end of this difficult passage. I'm going to leave verses 23 and 24 for now, but before I close, I want to bring one final thing to you because I think there is another lesson that we haven't discussed here directly. Pretty sure that everybody will be familiar with 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. As I said at the beginning, on first reading, this text looks like Timothy was wrong. This bit of 2 Corinthians looks pretty sterile. There's nothing really interesting in it apart from the bit about everything being yes and amen in Jesus. Yet, look where it has taken us today. We've learned about the importance of character and conduct to be seen to be simple and sincere and look only to God's advice in the Bible and how to be that way. We've learned that confidence in God, boasting in God, is never misplaced. We've had the reassurance of our salvation. God never changes. His yes to us, yes, you are my child, is a yes forever. Look at all that from such an unpromising text. Wow, I tell you, I'm blown away. The trouble is that we are often in far too much of a hurry to get our daily reading done. Tick, what's next on the list? Breakfast. Well, often that still works because like that pie from the dairy, God's word is full of chunky, meaty bits. But they also swim in gravy. Sometimes we need to slow down and poke through the gravy for our tongues, with our tongues to find that extra special taste, to ponder, to consider. When we don't do this, we will rob ourselves of great blessing through God's word. Here endeth the final lesson. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the depth in your word. Thank you that you placed so much in it for us to find. But Lord, I do pray that through your Holy Spirit working on us, we would have a hunger to find it, that we would sit and look and think and ask you for help to understand it. And Lord, we also know that some of these lessons are easy to read, but really hard to do. To be sincere and simple is hard. And Lord, I pray that you would help us and steal us to be that way, so that your gospel may be preached and that your word may be true, and that many would come to know Christ as their Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.